0: The draft amendments to the Firearms Control Bill of 2021 have certainly stirred uh, heated criticism uh, from the likes of uh, the gun lobby to ordinary citizens. Uh, The bill really should be aiming to reduce the need to own a gun for personal protection and the proposed uh, amendments purport to tackle South Africa's violent crime epidemic, uh, but without first dealing with dysfunctionalities and corruption in the South African Police Service. Uh, And uh, serious questions remain about whether the bill only exacerbates uh, the problem amendments need to be evaluated against uh, the country's world-topping violent crime statistics and why gun ownership is needed in the first place. I'm joined now by uh, Martin Hood, the country's leading lawyer on gun control. Martin, welcome to the show. I'm sure you're up to your eyeballs uh, in this bill at the moment. Uh, why is the Minister publishing the Firearms Control Bill and what are its major objectives?
1: I think that the, well, the bill was published by the Secretariat under the auspices of the the minister, and I think very simply, it comes at a time when the minister is under siege because of the high levels of crime in this country, because of the lack of stability that this country has, and when you are a when you are a government under siege, it's a typical strategy to divert attention away from your own failings by doing something such as blaming somebody else for the problem, and in effect, that is what the Firearms Control Amendment Bill does. It blames legal firearm owners for the failings that this government has when it's come to controlling crime.
0: How so? How how is it blaming the legal uh, firearm-owning fraternity out there for our rampant crime problem?
1: Well, to put it simply, the police believe that because civilians have firearms stolen from them, that is effectively the source of all evil and particularly firearm crime. Um, That is not the case. Uh, We've just managed to prize a report commissioned by the secretariat from the secretariat's hands, and it's not a surprise that he didn't want to disclose this report because uh, he has used that report on behalf of the minister to justify these proposals, but that report doesn't say that. It's a report from a group called the BRITS Study Group. It's an academic statistical study. And it says two things which I think are really important for listeners to bear in mind. The first is that firearms are only used in 5% of crimes. So you can't say that firearms are the source of crime in this country. But more importantly, this report says that the Firearms Control Act on its own is not an effective crime prevention tool. What is most important and more important is strong policing, effective policing. And we don't have that in this country. Yet the minister has deemed it appropriate to turn around and say, we're not the problem, legal firearm owners are the problem. Yet the rationale that he's using, the report doesn't support
0: his statements. I was going to question, Martin, whether or not we actually have empirical research or evidence uh, uh, to substantiate this claim, That uh, crimes committed with firearms are committed with firearms stolen from uh, private licensed gun holders.
1: Well, we don't, and that's uh, if if anything, the report suggests the 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 statistics suggest exactly the opposite. Bearing in mind that firearms are only used in five percent of crimes, what we have, for example, is declining capability on the part of the police to investigate crimes. only 19% of reported crimes result in a successful prosecution. And we have systemic failings not only in our policing system, but in our court system and within the National Prosecuting Authority. So we're looking at a complex mix of factors when it comes to why we have crime in this country. And the police and the minister, for reasons best known to themselves, have taken a very simple approach to crime and they have pointed at a group of people that are normally law-abiding, and they said, you're the problem. But unfortunately, that conclusion is simply not supported by any factual basis whatsoever. If I can also just say, Michael, reading through these proposed amendments, and I'm going to use a a metaphor, and it's a very poor metaphor, but what the secretary has tried to do is to get a car mechanic to create a nuclear power plant. That is how poor these proposed amendments are. They show no understanding of the act itself, no understanding of the educational and training environment. And I've just noticed, going through it just before the show, um, that they put a proposed amendment into um, these amendments that's already in the current legislation. So the people that drafted these proposals either didn't read the existing legislation or simply don't know what's in it. And that just shows how little thought has gone into these proposals. It shows that this is driven by dogma or policy that has no basis in fact or reality.
0: That kind of sloppy drafting uh, really does uh, expose the bill quite seriously. And this removal of the right to own a firearm for self-protection, I mean, what would that mean in effect? Uh, How many uh, licensed gun owners are are there in South Africa who have that uh, listed as their primary reason in a country where we have rampant and violent crime and where many feel that SAPS isn't able to uh, fully protect oneself or one's family from intruders?
1: I'm going to start by answering that in the following way. The the Secretariat issued a press release on, on Friday saying that the use of firearms for self-defense is extremely rare. Now, that's a lie, and it is incredibly misleading. And the reason why I say that is because the police don't take reports of successful use of firearms for self-defense unless there is a criminal offense. If there's a criminal offense, they will open a docket of murder or attempted murder or pointing of a firearm. But that's where the police investigation ends, because if there's no successful prosecution, that docket is closed. But it still reflects on the police reports as an attempted murder or murder or pointing of a firearm. And you can't extrapolate simply by looking at the statistics whether that was a use of a firearm for self-defense. And we've been asking the police for as long as I've been in this environment, so it goes on 25 years, for them to break down their statistics into better categories, and I'll give you some examples of the categories. Mm. If a policeman shoots somebody and kills them, are they using their firearm for self-defense? Is it a lawful use of a firearm, or is it an illegal use of a firearm? We don't know. What number of these killings results in criminal on criminal violence? What number of these killings would be by civilian owners protecting themselves? And for whatever reason, the police have steadfastly refused to even interrogate their own statistics to break it down into those sort of categories. And that says two things. The first is that the Secretariat can't say that the use of firearms in self-defense is extremely rare because it's impossible to determine it. And the second is that the police have a motive in not breaking down those statistics because I do believe that... If that breakdown was possible, it would show that there is a very substantial use of firearms for self-defence in this country, successful Mm. use. And that would completely contradict the policy statements of the minister and the secretariat saying that we don't need firearms for self-defence. And, Michael, you and I know, we all know, people who have been involved in violent crime, violent confrontations, we know that the security industry Is the first responder in most instances. And we all know someone that unfortunately had to use a firearm to protect himself. I'm one of those persons. And I can speak from personal experience. I had to beg the police to even write what's called an OB entry into their register, just so that there was a record that I discharged my firearm because the police don't take that type of data. They don't take those reports.
0: And, and that's the problem. So, when, when we're dealing in, in an environment where there's an absence of empirical data, it's very hard to draw the, the sweeping conclusions that are seemingly drawn via the legislation. What, what about firearms that are stolen from the SAPS, uh, so-called um, you know, uh, p- police guns that are used in crime? There, there are several stories in the press about uh, guns going missing from various SAPS officers all the time
1: so I think again we can we can break that into two distinct parts. there are firearms that, that there are police and military firearms that are stolen from the police and the military. those are service firearms issued to police officers and the police have um, a history a track record of losing firearms. there was the recent last week break in I think at the petty police station where a large number of firearms were stolen. The second category is firearms that are in the custody of the police. In other words, they've been handed in um, by the owner for destruction or they've been confiscated by the police. And we all know about the well-known example of Colonel Chris Princeton, who sold many thousands. And when I say many thousands, the estimates in the press are underestimates. The number is in five figures, Hmm. where he stole firearms and sold them into the criminal gangland market in the Western Cape. And he is not the only policeman to have done that. There is currently an investigation in the Western Cape into police members who've been doing exactly that. Again, they've been taking confiscated firearms in police custody and selling them out of the back door. So a major source of illegal firearms, to put it simply, is the very law enforcement authorities that are trying to take away our firearms.
0: And that is uh, the the irony that I think is lost on very few here. I want to come back to the private security industry. How does this bill impact on the private security industry? Uh, And uh, what new responsibilities does it place on private security companies in order to uh, register and obtain firearms?
1: I I think I, again, need to just preface my response by saying that the private security industry in general rejects these proposals just as strongly as all other interest groups do. There's been some suggestion that the private security industry will benefit from these proposals. That's not at all true. These proposals place very severe restrictions on how a security company can obtain a firearm license, what type of firearm can be used, and how it can be used. And again, the drafters of the proposals have a complete lack of understanding of how the private security industry works. And that shows in some of the proposals that they've made because they want to take away, and I'll just give one example, they want to take away certain types of firearms, um, particularly self-loading rifles. So we have a very large cash in transit, um, asset in transit uh, industry in this country, and there was a a well-known... Viral video that circulated recently of an attempted heist um, by some criminals of a vehicle carrying some, uh, some, I think it was cell phones, uh, went viral throughout the world. Yes. And those persons were armed with self-loading rifles, but they were attacked by people who had self-loading or automatic rifles. What these proposals do, and I'm going to put it very simply, is they want those very security officers only have a handgun when they get attacked by up to 10 people with fully automatic rifles. Hmm. So this is putting the lives of security officers at stake because there's no way that you can be armed with a handgun and have any form of confrontation and protect yourself against a criminal that's got an automatic rifle that comes from the police or the army in the first place.
0: Now... I mean, it just—it boggles the mind, it really. It, it, I mean, everything that we've just spoken about seems to uh, run uh, very counter to a policy uh, directive that is set from the president. That seems to be based on uh, proper um, impact assessments based on empirical evidence and uh, in the greater public good. This doesn't seem to do that. It's—it's uh, it's not.
1: Well, there was no. There was no consultation with any of the material stakeholders. And what, what I mean by material stakeholders is, is the security industry, the training industry, hunting associations, sport shooting associations. Uh, when I say, Michael, that there is just such a lack of understanding of firearm ownership by the people that drafted this bill, I cannot overemphasize that. And I don't want to bore listeners, but I'll give you one example. We have clay um, target shooting in this country. In fact, our clay target shooters are very... Really successful internationally. They have protea colours and they go and shoot all around the world and we win competitions. Now, play target shooting is regulated internationally by a body, just like the Olympics are. In fact, play target shooting is an Olympic sport by the way. Um, So, if you want to involve yourself in competitive shooting, you have to comply with a set of international requirements and these proposals have completely ignored those international requirements so the people, if they want to shoot a competition, actually can't get enough ammunition to shoot a competition to qualify to get colours because there's a limitation on the amount of ammunition that you can possess. Oh. So th- that's just one ridiculous example of a failure to talk to stakeholders that could sit down and explain to the people that go mm-hmm. it's not going to work that way. Do you want to destroy um, people that are internationally competitive. You want to destroy their dream of representing their
0: country. So bottom, bottom line, Martin, just as we are running out of time, if if the public want to make input into the bill, uh, what's the process to follow now?
1: The Secretariat has given until the 4th of July to accept submissions. You can just go onto the Secretariat's website. However, there's an urgent application on Wednesday in the North Ghateng High Court Um, to try and obtain a court order to extend that comment time. And the the Secretariat released some documentation on Friday, late on Friday, um, one of of which was this particular report that I mentioned, that contains a great deal of statistical data that needs to be properly analysed. So I suspect, and I'm waiting to hear from the Secretariat, I suspect that the Secretariat knows that they've got to give us more time now that they've released these documents i do expect that the time period will be extended but you can lodge an objection by simply going onto the website of the secretariat there's an email address there and you can have a look at the bill and you can state your objections and i've sketched a number of potential objections in terms of restrictions on self-defense the security industry the training industry and so on and i just want to finish by saying that there has been a massive groundswell from civil society in opposition to these proposals, because people understand that if these proposals are accepted, people's lives are going to be lost. No. And, I to, and I want to end by saying that a spokesperson from gun-free South Africa said, why should farmers have guns to protect themselves? They're getting killed anyway, so obviously guns are no good. And I can tell you that that did not go down very well with farmers associations and the agricultural unions in this country because it made people's lives seem very
0: cheap. And that uh, uh, sadly is uh, the the bottom line here. We are talking about lives. We're also talking about livelihoods as well, as uh, this particular bill seems to be uh, aiming and shooting at the wrong target here. Martin Hood, gun law expert uh, and attorney, with the breakdown on the Firearm Control Amendment Bill of 2021.